I've had some thoughts as a spin-off from last week's sermon about uh, Isaiah 58 and, and other scriptures in terms of the desolations of uh, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that have been desolate for many generations and uh, showed that in Isaiah 58 is one of those that recounts how there will be waste and desolate places that were that way for many generations as Isaiah 64 and Jeremiah 9 and other places show us. This is a companion scripture, but it tied in so well with uh, what we have been experiencing lately with the people in Kenya uh, that I felt it was important to show what is what God expects of us. And here, the object of this fast that God is calling is that we cry aloud and spare not, first of all. In other words, there's something here in this chapter that needs our attention pretty badly, okay? So, then he introduces the thing of fasting and shows how we normally do it, as I recounted last week, uh, for some spiritual need or whatever, or our own spiritual benefit, uh, and not necessarily as an outreach to others. And he shows then that an important part of it is that we give our bread to those who have need and invite them to our home and that type of thing. Uh, which we went to several scriptures to show that that is a very important concept for us to grasp here in the end time. That God is very concerned about the, the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, those who are underprivileged or uh, have difficulties in life. And indeed, throughout the Bible, uh, that is a theme that recurs. Christ upbraided the Pharisees and Sadducees for that, because they were taking care of themselves and not taking care of the needy, except as a vain show, essentially. So, it is a focus not on self, but on others. Now, someone asked me a question by email this morning about Isaiah 45, which tied in with this, and I, and I had gone there with you about the Sabaeans, the Ethiopians, and the Mitzrayamites who would come and attach themselves to the end-time work and want to be part of it. And how were they part of, uh, since physical Israel built the church, uh, built the temple originally, what about spiritual Israel, and would they be involved, and would Gentiles or others be involved? Uh, well, I think obviously... As I've already said today in announcements, Paul said we're neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, in terms of spiritual standing before God. We're all the same. There is no difference. Once you're grafted in as a Gentile, you become part of the tree. You're not something different anymore. You are a spiritual Jew, or whatever tribe he tends to put you in, uh, based on the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14. So... We are not different, but they chain themselves to us. And so is this a, a different form of graft? Well, in a way it is, whether you graft it in or you chain it to it. But in that sense, these people are already part of God's church. They're already spiritual Jews. But it is the work itself that God is going to begin to do that they want to become part of. In other words, Isaiah 45 says... 
we see that God is with you, we want to be there doing what you're doing. So what he's drawing it down to here, what God is drawing it down to, is not whether we're just members of the church somewhere in the world, but are we willing to be involved with what God is doing at the end time? That becomes a very important question. Now, many of you might remember Herbert Armstrong saying, I say many, uh, it's getting where many don't have a memory bank that goes back to the things he said. And I, I tend to forget that. But he quite frequently would say, and I remember this from back in at least the early 60s, that we're not here for personal salvation, brethren. You remember him? He'd say that, and then he'd uh, uh, say, we're here to do the work. And that was always, uh, I don't know, a, a bit of a dichotomy to me. I, uh, what do you mean I'm not here for salvation? I want to be saved. I want to be in the kingdom of God. Now, I tried to understand overall what he was saying. He said, we're not called here for personal salvation. We're called here to do a work of God so that it opens salvation up to more people. In other words, God called you to help do a work that will share God's Word and God's salvation with more people. In other words, it's not selfish. It's what he was trying to get across. But it was still always a bit of a question in everybody's mind, well, what do you mean I'm not here to be saved? <laughs> I want to be... Uh, but I think where we are today, and the things that I just introduced again, have a lot to say about that. In other words, the end-time work of God is not just about our personal salvation. There are many, many people in the church today who are candidates, whatever part of the church they are in, uh, to be a part of the kingdom of God. But he is going to do a specific work at the end, just like he did with Herbert Armstrong. But we've come to see that Herbert Armstrong's calling really, or his, yeah, his calling was to call many. And out of that, few would be chosen to do the final work or the latter temple. So in understanding that, he was right. He had a vision of what he was to do. God had given him, given him, a clear mind that he was to reach out to the world and he was to bring people into the church or into the truth in the church. And he did a good job of that. But God also knew there would be problems. And what would happen to the church? He foresaw it. He wrote it down ahead of time for us. And now, lo and behold, it's happened and we have been scattered and spewed. But we need, as then, when he was saying those things, then as now, we need to understand that this isn't all about personal salvation, it's about sharing, and we have to come to have the same kind of mindset that God has, okay? We need to think like he thinks. We're not here for him just to point and us do, but we're come or here to internalize his way of thinking into our minds. So I think the reason I may have had a little bit of a 
struggle with understanding, why aren't I here for salvation? What do you mean? I'm here to make booklets and and uh, ties so you can have broadcasts. God already has salvation, okay? Not saved from something. I don't mean it in that traditional sense. But He has eternal life. He's already got eternity. So that's not what He's after. What He is after, and I think we understand that, He is after the opportunity to share that with ultimately probably at least billions of people so that they might also enjoy the peace, the security, the happiness, the joy of eternal life under good conditions. That's what he wants to share with those he has created here in his image uh, so that we might learn his ways and ultimately be given the gift of eternal life. So, that's the way he thinks. I want to share what I have. And he wants us to come to think that way, that this isn't just about me. This isn't just about what I want. This just isn't about God blessing me. This is about God wanting to cause his plan to go to millions and billions of people. It's without end. Who knows? There could be trillions, ultimately. We'll not speculate on all that. But he's dealing with billions at the moment. And he says most will be saved, ultimately. So he wants at least billions in his kingdom, all right? Now, we have to think the same way. God has a plan, and the plan is to make billions of gods. So we need to know who, what, why, where, when, and how God is going about that. And if we understand that, then we can get within His will and within His purpose, and then what we ask will be done because it is according to His will. When someone makes a prayer to God that is their will, their desire, their need, their want, whatever, God is not necessarily bound to answer that, because it is not necessarily, the request that is, within the bounds of His will at that time. If we want response from God, then we have to be sure that what we are asking is within His will, His time, His purpose, and what He is doing. Then, He will answer positively. Now you can say, well, why isn't my healing or why isn't me getting a job within his will? Well, it may not be without his will. It may just not be what is being done according to his purpose. We need to understand his purpose for whatever time we are living in. David needed to understand it in terms of his lifetime. That God wanted a temple built. Uh-oh, you can't do it, but Solomon can, but get ready for it. Whatever. He needed to know what God's purpose was. So did Ezra. So did Herbert Armstrong, to one degree or another, need to know what God was working out here below. And, and showed him the mystery of salvation out of the Bible uh, that the world does not understand. So we came to understand something the world doesn't know, didn't we? And God invited us to be a part of it, to share ultimately with the world. So let's not forget that concept here. 
Uh, it is brought out very vividly in Isaiah 58, that those who take care of the poor and the needy, the suffering, the underprivileged, who give their bread, not their extra, but theirs, and invite to their place or their home, those who have need, that he will use them to repair the breach between man and God, between the church and God, and use them to restore the proper paths to dwell in, both physically where we're supposed to be walking, as well as the spiritual way that we're to walk, as Scriptures clearly show. So it is a sharing thing that God has in mind. I want to approach the subject of tithing here briefly in this light. I mentioned this concept sometime back uh, because I think I understand tithing better than I ever did now. But what is first tithe? I, I want the meaning of tithing, not just that we're to do it, which we always did because God said do it, but did we understand what it represented and what it meant and why God caused it to go where it went in terms of his plan and his purpose. We've always understood that the holy days have significant types attached to them, that they altogether form uh, a yearly rehearsal of his plan of salvation. The church has understood that for decades. What about tithing? Now, what is the first commandment or the first four commandments? Is worship God and put Him above everything else. What does He tell us to do with the first tithe? He says, that first tithe is my tithe. That's the one you put aside for me. Now, in, in like the same way, when He starts talking about gathering a remnant of His church, He talks about... 10% or a tithe. That's my part of the church I have selected to do my end time work. I will have my tithe. Out of everything that was called by Herbert Armstrong into the church, God is going to have his tithe, his 10%. So it isn't just about money. Money is only a type, in that case, of people. And he is going to have 10% of his people. One way or another, he's going to do it. And he'll put us through whatever he has to put us through to get us there. Now, there's another important type involved here, or symbolism. God said, now I want you to set aside my tithe, and then I want to give it, you to give it to the priesthood. In other words, I am going to work through men. They will be doing my purpose, fulfilling my responsibilities I lay on them in terms of the rest of Israel and the church. Now, that's easily translated to the New Testament where it says, Paul says, obviously Christ didn't come from Levi, he came from Judah. Therefore, there had to be a change in the tithing law, not a annulling of the law, but a change because he said now it is to go to the tribe of Judah or the spiritual church, the spiritual Jews, under Christ, or the New Testament ministry, is what Paul was explaining. 
So he said, and he told James, Peter, Paul, John, all of his apostles, I'm going to work through you to take care of my church for me down there. So he has always worked through men. So his tithe of money he has allocated to uh, the ministry to do the work. So he's telling us a lot there, that he does work through men. Uh, that is a sore spot with a lot of people, because they like to think that they're okay with God and that they don't need a ministry, and that has become fairly popular in the church that has split apart today. But it is not the way the Bible was written. Uh, even Paul said, can a man learn except he have a preacher? And you say, well, I have a mind and I, I got my own Bible study program. I can learn. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And God intended you to. And he told you to study to show, to prove these things, to study to show yourself approved and so on. And he gave us the scripture uh, that by it we might be inspired and taught and learned and chastened and so on. So, yes, we can learn. We have minds. That's not the question. Part of the problem is God understands human nature. And part of the trial and the test we go through is whether or not we can work with those whom he appoints to oversee the church in a right kind of relationship so that we can all be part of the kingdom of God someday. So, yeah, you could have a one-on-one -on -one with God, but is that going to fulfill the purposes of God? So, we have a responsibility. I don't want to get away from that. Another thought came to mind there. But let's look at second tithe then. With that one, the purpose given is to keep his feasts. Okay? And he says, first, you and your family are to use that to go up to the feast and to live high during that period of time, to spend it on whatever. It represents plenty and prosperity, ultimately in the millennium, the kingdom of God. So he designates that you give it first to you and your family because you want to be a part of the kingdom of God when Christ is ruling on the earth as kings and priests with him, don't you? So you want to keep the feast so that someday you can be part of that. Then he tells you to share it with the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, so on. Uh, that's the same thing we've been talking about in Isaiah 58 as the purpose of a fast. We are to be there as kings and priests with Christ to reign in the millennium and to teach those children who survive the tribulation, the people on the earth, who will be at that point widows and orphans and strangers and very underprivileged. We are to share what we have with them. So the symbolized symbolism of second tithe is salvation in the kingdom of God. The millennium is open to you but it is also going to be open to all the people that survived the Holocaust and the seven last plagues, and you're to be there to share the spiritual and physical things of God with them so that they can have a fulfilling life and ultimately be part of the kingdom of God. So the symbolism of second tithe becomes very important in terms of the plan of salvation 
and of us being willing to share what we have. Mr. Armstrong was right. This isn't all about personal salvation. This is about sharing with others. And that is God's way of thinking. He is there to share, to give, to help. So he instituted these physical things like tithing, which become very difficult for us sometimes. It's a physical thing, but it has such great spiritual meaning. The God is number one, and our salvation and those around us come second, pictured by the feasts and second tithe. It points us toward service and giving and helping. Now what about third tithe? In it, you receive nothing yourself. You don't go to the feast with it. Well, it pictures the time of the great white throne judgment. You will already have salvation by then. What do you need out of it? The people who were the children of Christ and his bride in the millennium will have salvation by then. They don't need any of it. Who's left? All those people from Adam on down who lived and died as babies, as old people, whatever, who never knew God's truth, never had opportunity, they're going to come up in the resurrection. The rest of the dead at the end of the thousand years, as Revelation 20 says. So, they will come up having been, having died or been killed or whatever, but having been humbled at least by death and come up as a physical resurrection, Ezekiel 37, and they will be in great need. They won't have clothes, they won't have food, they won't have shelter, they won't have anything. So God says that the third tithe is for the orphan, the, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and so on. Because they are the ones who are going to have need in the great white throne judgment. So God has us keep that third tithe as a symbol of those people who will come up in the great white throne judgment and be in need. Now, with that symbolism in mind, doesn't it make it clearer why God says in Isaiah 58, the ones that are going to do my work at the end, repair the breach that the church has with me, and rebuild the old ways, are going to be those who are willing to share and give what they have. Because that's the way God thinks, and that's the way He wants us to think. Now, I think we here understand very well by now, I've gone over it many, many times, and I'm sure you have in your own study, uh, why the church is split and scattered like it has. And we've used what Christ said there in Revelation 3 about how he spewed it out of his mouth, uh, which could be in terms of either not liking the way something tastes and fitting it everywhere, or I've used it in terms of throwing up or vomiting it out, which is also a spew. I suppose either one of those <laughs> could fit, but it's, it's all about the same. Uh, so we understand that the church had to be scattered because of spiritual attitudes and what we had become. Uh, we were going about our business in a lukewarm fashion, going through the motions, 
but not really doing perhaps what God needed done. But he's laid, out, laid that out for us uh, all through the Bible now that we understand. But I want to bring another analogy into this, which might make us or help us understand it even better. Let's go to Romans 16. Romans 16. Well, on 1 Corinthians, that won't work. Read verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Now, we've used this over the decades when someone was causing division and so on within the church, that they were to be marked uh, and we would have nothing to do with them or avoid them because they were uh, creating division in the body and maybe members were being affected or were being sickened or weakened or whatever by the attack on the body. So they were told that those that were in that category were to be set aside and avoided. Uh, one, for causing division, and then those causing offenses that are contrary to the doctrine we've learned. So it could also be false doctrine that precipitated such an action. Uh, either way. Now think about that in terms of Revelation 3 for a moment. This might be kind of a startling thought. Revelation 3, he says of Laodicea, So then because you are lukewarm, verse 16, neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, increased with goods, have need of nothing, and you just don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here is a category of people who think they are okay, and yet God says the real truth of the matter is, <laughs> you're in terrible spiritual condition and you don't know it. We can so easily deceive ourselves about our true spiritual condition, and this is a category of people who obviously uh, were self-deceived in that circumstance. And we all know now, once God did scatter it and spew it, uh, every one of us, I'm sure, wanted to maintain his own righteousness and his own mind. I, I'm okay, I'm a Philadelphian. Uh, it's somebody else that is the problem. And as I've said many times before, if no one will accept the problem, no one will say, that must be me, then no one is going to change and things will remain as they have been. Now, what has happened since God began to scatter the church? Everyone has maintained, essentially, most have at least, what they were, and tried to go on doing what they had been doing in worldwide. The various groups, organizations, have done the same thing. Well, let's just head down, let's just go on preaching the gospel and printing booklets. 
let's do the work that Herbert Armstrong failed to do, not understanding what his real work was. But nothing has changed, and there's been very little fruit. So that's it on an organizational level, but even on a personal level, well, it must be them, it can't be me. So forget about them, it's just you and me, God. We're tight, aren't we? We try to tell ourselves that we're okay. It must be somebody else's problem. And, consequently, nothing is getting done about the problem. It just continues to scatter and divide. And I hear that there are more divisions in the wings, and it can happen to any group, including ours. And I think that's a very important reason we need to understand that the end-time work involves more than just us and more than personal salvation for us, but it <clears throat> involves making God's purposes known to any who will listen in the church, as well as a warning to the world that has to come for three and a half years. What I'm trying to lead up to here, if I don't die on the spot, <laughs> is that, uh, brethren, we've all been disfellowshipped. Every one of us has been disfellowshipped. Now, you can call it anything you want spewed out of his mouth. Whatever it was in your mouth that you spewed, you pretty well disfellowshipped it from the rest of your body. You can use many, many different analogies. He's talked about how he scattered the church. Well, that's it's the same thing. You, you scatter it out of your view. He says he turned his face from us. Many, many prophecies talk about that. In other words, I can't stand to look at you. So he's avoiding contact. God is avoiding contact with his church. We were causing division. We were causing uh, upset in his mind and in Christ's mind because we weren't doing things his way. Now, we're told to fellowship with the Father and the Son, and that is the source of our greatest fellowship. But it's always on his terms. Understand that? He will only fellowship with those who are of like mind with him. And in fact, he tells us to do the same thing. We're not to fellowship with the world. I've got the scriptures written down here. I might get to them. But we're to fellowship with each other because we're to be one in Christ. So that is where our fellowship is. So in effect... He has simply disfellowshipped us. Now, I wanted to use that analogy because I think we can understand it in some ways better than perhaps some other analogies we may have used in the past. When you're disfellowshipping the ministry, let's say, from worldwide in years gone by or from other groups today, and that's fairly common, that you have been by that separated from your relationship with God. And isn't that what he tells them uh, in 1 Corinthians 5? And I think we should refer to that here. 1 Corinthians 5. We all know this story about the uh, man who had some kind of a sexual relationship that was improper. There's been speculation as to what kind, and it really doesn't matter. The point is it was contrary to God's law. But here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, 
verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which when you were gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Christ, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, in disfellowshipping from the church, Paul made a very strong statement there. He said, I'm turning that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the Spirit might be ultimately saved. Now, the man was supposed to do what? Continue sinning and die and miss out on salvation? No. He was to repent, to stop what he was doing. The others were to quit condoning it and not have anything to do with him until it was repented of. And then, in 2 Corinthians 2, when the man had repented, Paul said, now you're supposed to accept him back. You're supposed to forgive. You're not supposed to hold it against him. You're to bring him back with open arms and accept him as part of the body of Christ again, because he has repented and has changed that. But for a period of time, God said, turn him over to Satan that he be destroyed unless he repent, unless he change. That's pretty grim. Now, what has God told us? He has said, I am spewing you out of my mouth because of your spiritual condition, and now I want you to go repent and change and grow and overcome, then I will let you into my kingdom. So, in effect, it's the same as disfellowshipment. Now, if we don't do what Christ instructed there, to repent, change, grow, overcome, he says we'll miss out on the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is, I am disassociating myself from you until you repent. And I'm going to come knock on the door, and you better be ready to answer. Now, isn't that the same analogy in the Song of Songs? He comes and knocks on the door, and his bride isn't ready. Well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm all wrapped up, got my teddy bear, got my covers on, I'm, my gown, and I'm, I'm comfy. Oh, come on, why don't you come in the middle of the night? Why don't you wait till morning? Or whatever. But she finally gets up, goes to the door, he's gone. Same analogy as in Revelation 3. So what God is saying is, I'm disassociating myself from you until you straighten up, and then I'm going to come knock on the door, and I'm going to see what your spiritual condition is, and if you're in the right attitude and the right mind and ready to do what you're supposed to be doing, I'm going to receive you. Otherwise, I will reject you. Now, when he says he's turned his face from us until we turn to him with our whole heart, and until we fast with the attitude of Isaiah 58 to share and give and help others, not just here for my salvation or me to be comfy in my gown again, and I'll get salvation uh, when the time comes. No, he's disfellowshipped us, I'm sorry. Why does he say then in Isaiah 58, if you will do these things, if you will take care of others, 
and you show me that your attitude is not selfish, but you're willing to share and give and help, then I'll use you. And when you call, then will I answer. It's been perplexing and frustrating, hasn't it, over the last over quarter century to pray and pray and not much happens. Maybe you get a little inter, inter, intervention or help with healing once in a while, but nothing major like we in many times used to have in the church in the 50s and 60s, but it kind of died out. And it's gotten worse over time. We don't get the answers in the church that we used to get, and certainly not the kind we'd like to get. Well, it's because God simply doesn't answer when we call. Now, He hasn't disfellowshipped us in terms of consigning us to the lake of fire. He chastens every son whom He loves, and He still cares about us, and we're still His children. But that doesn't mean He doesn't send us to our room once in a while to think about our attitude. And He's not going to be conferring blessings and so on on us during that period of punishment. So that's what we're going through, and that's why it's so difficult. And He is going to continue to put the pressure on until we turn wholeheartedly, and until we begin to say, what I want doesn't matter anymore, I want to share with others. And He's doing this with physical things. The physical things, again, only represent spiritual attitude, but He uses, we're human beings, we're physical beings. And therefore, he uses physical things to teach us spiritual lessons. Just as tithe has symbolism connected to it, first, second, and third, to teach us spiritual lessons and to spiritually share, so does, uh, where, where was I going with that thought? Oh, so does his instruction regarding the fast. He wants us to give our money, not tithe, not offering, not that which we normally provide, but ours, that which was left for us to share with others. It's physical. And we being physical, it hurts us. It's a sacrifice for us. But the spiritual lesson there is what is so important. And that we come to have his attitude of sharing eternal life with others. And all the blessings of God with others. Now, what about the end time work? I mean the latter temple, the last work before Christ returns. Again, it reflects God's same kind of thinking. He's bringing the two witnesses together at some point to cause the remnant church, the faithful remnant, his tithe, his faithful ones. I'm still trying to die here. All right, he is going to gather that 10% to rebuild the church, to put it back together. We've seen many, many scriptures on that. But here again, it's not a selfish thing. Here again, I think he has given us this knowledge, uh, and, and I have reason to say that he caused us to come here and prepare a place. 
that they might begin to gather. So that is what you and I, water on my shirt, oh, no, uh, what you and I have been called to do is come here and get a place ready for them to come. Now I think we've got that in some ways partially handled. And one of the big tests then is are we willing to give uh, what we have to others, both on a spiritual level of understanding and secondly, to share physically what we have to give. He's testing us with that. If we will, are willing to give to those in need physically, financially, then it's showing us we have an attitude of being willing to give everything spiritually to his cause and to his purpose. You know, there are a lot of organizations in the church with a lot of ideas about what they want to do. They each have their own focus, whatever it might be. Uh, preaching the gospel, getting the calendar right, or a dozen other things you might mention that different groups might have. I am only concerned about one thing. And the six questions answers that. But what is God doing, and how does He want it done? I'm only concerned about what God is doing. And who, what, why, where, when, and how He wants it done. That's all that matters. And I want to be part of who, and I want to be part of what, and I want to be part of why, and when, and where, and how. I think we all want to be part of whatever God is doing. But we have to comprehend and understand what that is. Therefore, you have all these people running different directions, doing different things, who don't understand what God is about to do. We are blessed to have begun to understand that, I think. And how we react is going to be very important to God as to whether we're ultimately included as part of it. Now, out in the world, you have corporations doing a lot of different things. Goldman Sachs and Procter and Gamble, Tyson's and all these different corporations have their corporate goals and purposes of what they want done. And they do pretty well at it. Now, in the church, you have a lot of different people that have different views of what they think God might want done and want them to do. And they're going in many different directions, doing different things. But God does not seem to be blessing that effort. If they've decided to preach the gospel around the world and call people, uh, they may be putting great energy and effort into it, but they're getting very little results. Not much is happening. Nothing's changing. Uh, if they're trying to get the calendar right, and that's the avowed view of several different groups, and that's sometimes about their only doctrine or the thing that they dote on the most. They're trying to have the perfect calendar, and yet God has changed the heavens, and they're not perfect anymore, so they can't even get the, the perfect calendar. Anybody tells me has the perfect calendar, I know immediately they don't know what they're talking about. Because there is no such thing. The calendar's in the heavens, and God scrambled it. 
on purpose because of our sins. And you're not going to get a perfect calendar when you don't have perfect heavens. But they think if they can combine barley and, and first sight or whatever they want to combine, that theirs is the perfect solution. There's not a perfect solution to an imperfect problem. Only God can fix it. So we can focus on many different things, okay? And we might have a modicum of success, but it is only going to be essentially based on the return of our efforts. In other words, if it is not who, what, why, where, when, and how God wants something done, He will not be in it. And if He is not in it, it is not going to produce the fruits that He wants. That means what you're doing, you're doing like a worldly corporation. You may have goals and you may meet those goals to some degree, but what does it gain anybody, ultimately? No, the only way that we can call and God will answer, and He will be involved if we understand what He wants done, how He wants it done, where He wants it done, and all those six questions. If we do it according to His will, then He says, I will answer. Now, how are we going to find out His will? How do we know what He wants done, and by whom, and where? This is the place to find it. And do you know that most people have not really looked there for that? All they have done is taken Matthew twenty four fourteen and Matthew twenty eight nineteen to twenty and said, I guess we better just run with that. That's what Mr. Armstrong thought he ought to be doing, so that's what we ought to be doing. Now when let's get back to the other thought. When we're disfellowshipped, what is the purpose? It is to shake us away. It is to cause us to alter our course. It is to cause us to repent before God of whatever sin may be involved. It is to change things. Now, when God disfellowshipped the church, spewed it out, scattered it, He intended that it change us. He intended it to shake us to our core. He intended us to begin to look and to search and to find Him. But most people did not do that. Remember the parable about those planted in good soil and those in the rocks and those in the thorns and so on. Well, turns out that's kind of the way it was. Many just went along with the paganism when God just took the church back into paganism and set it on its base there, as Zechariah 5 shows. They went along with all that paganism and false doctrine. Others stuck with the truth. And to do what Herbert Armstrong had been doing, and do only what Herbert Armstrong had been doing, but didn't God just blow apart what Herbert Armstrong had been doing? Now why would you continue on doing what God had just shown was not what He had in mind? In other words, it should have shaken us awake to look for some deeper answer somewhere. 
not just go on doing what had been being done and then having not much success with it. You can be energetic, you can do whatever you want, but I'll tell you this, God won't be in it under those circumstances. Now, the only place you're going to find what God wants done, how He's going to do it, who He's going to do it with, where He's going to do it, is in this book. It became very quickly obvious to me when I began to really study into it that Petra was an idea that Protestant theologians had and that they thought we were going to Petra for a place of safety. Herbert Armstrong read a commentary, I guess, picked up on that and thought that's where we were going. It's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that at all. It's just not there. It does name another place that God says is his place of refuge and where we're to go. It says it many, many times when you understand it. So we need to be searching these scriptures to find out what God wants. And I'll tell you this. When he starts refellowshipping people, and that's what the gathering is going to be, he has disfellowshipped us all, turned his face from us. He said, if we'll turn to him, he'll begin to turn his face back to us and bless us. And then he's going to, as he says in Haggai, to stir people to come. The faithful ones that he accepts, he is going to refellowship together in one place to do his final work. So all have been disfellowshipped, some will be accepted back. Others will never wake up to what's going on, and 90% will go into the tribulation. I guess what I'm trying to get said here is there's only one place God is going to work. There are two men that he is going to work through. That's all. Zechariah 11 talks about three major churches being cut down and their pastors cut off. There are only three major groups today. They're all going down. God is not working through any one group. He has true people scattered throughout the church and some of them sitting at home that don't go anywhere. At least not right now. But when he gets the place set up, he gets the leadership set up, he is going to begin to call those people to come build his temple, to reconstitute the church, to build it back better than what we were in worldwide. It's the whole story of Haggai and Zechariah. So he begins in the scriptures to answer the who, two leaders, and a faithful remnant of ten percent. What? Restore the truth. One of those, Elijah, part of Malachi, <coughs> excuse me, is to restore all things. So that which has been lost has to be restored. That's what? And I think that includes the promised land, the land of Ephraim. It includes where Jerusalem is. It includes a lot of things that have been lost that have to be restored. And true doctrine some of which Herbert Armstrong never discovered, and some we still probably haven't discovered either. So, what is a lot of things? Why? So that he will have a faithful remnant, and the world will not be totally destroyed, so no man is saved alive. Where? The environs of the true 
Zion and Jerusalem and the true promised land. Uh, when? Real soon now. Because I think the Scriptures show that the gathering will begin and perhaps even be almost complete before the financial crash of the world and especially the United States economy and our military takeover that is about to happen. And that is getting closer and closer day by day as we watch the news and so on and see what's happening in the world. We're on our last legs in this economy. How long it'll hold together? A few months? Another year? Who knows? But it doesn't have long to go. So these things have to start happening pretty soon. Now for you and me, that means we have some important questions to answer. And that is the who, what, why, where, when, and how of this. We better know from these scriptures what God is working where and through whom and why and how. If we know those, we'll be in the right place at the right time. He is only calling 10% together to do this. And the rest are going into the tribulation. He says in Zechariah 13, 5 and 6, I think it is, that about a third of them will repent and be tried in the fire and will be saved out of it. Now, they'll probably give up their physical life, uh, but be saved spiritually and eternally out of it. So they're going to begin to realize once they're in it, man, I have got to repent. You know what advantage we have? We know this story now. We can repent now. We can change now. We can get in line with God's will now. We can begin to give what we have to others and help them now. On a physical level and as well on a spiritual level. We can begin to get in line with God's Word. And if we do so, He says He will turn and begin to answer us. And when we call, he will hear and answer. Now, that's important. You know how many times over the last 25 years I've anointed somebody and really wished they'd be healed and nothing happened? That gets really frustrating. It really does. It is so hopeful when God intervenes at least to some degree and, and we get a bit of an answer. He's not denying us and hasn't disassociated us entirely. He's punishing us as a child. And he has not been answering much anywhere in the church. But he's going to show some great signs and wonders here in the end very soon. That will help, that will help people see where he is working so that they can come and attach themselves and be part of the end time work. So that's where we are. Uh, we need to have a clear view of what God is doing in the end time, and I don't have time to go into all that again. We've been there many times. But we better know, and we better be part of it. Because if you're not part of it, you're going into the tribulation. That's all there is to it. That's just the way it's going to be. And God's sorting us out now, brethren. He's trying us. He's testing us. He's checking us. He's putting us through trials and troubles and difficulties and problems because he needs to know where we are. He knows, needs to know what our heart is. And if it isn't right, maybe we have space to repent. 
If we don't repent, then we'll be disallowed. We won't be refellowshipped. We were all disfellowshipped for the rest of the church, every one of us. And now we need to be scrambling to be sure that we're one of those that God says, welcome back into my fellowship. I want you to come do my work, therefore I'll stir you to do that. So it's just one more analogy, really, of scattering and gathering or spewing and, and uh, redoing. But I think this fellowship fits it very, very well because we were not what we should be. We were put out. Now God expects us to get it together so that we're acceptable to Him again. And it wasn't somebody else's fault, brethren. We cannot fall into that pit. It was my fault. I was not what I should be. That's why I got spewed out or disfellowshipped. Now I'm doing what I can to change me and get me back in God's good graces. I hope we're getting close. I think if we fulfill Isaiah 58 the way he says to, that will be a big step in the right way. So let's take these scriptures seriously and let's take where we are spiritually and do our part to be sure that we're one of those that the Father says, yeah, you're right, son, I do want that one. Stir that one up. Get him back here. Wouldn't that be neat to know that God would stir you to come and do the work of the final temple? There's exciting things ahead, and I want us to all be included in that. So let's do our part.